Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Mark Earls. Dubbed by the do lectures as Britain's answer to Malcolm Gladwell without the hair, Mark is a prolific thinker, behavioural science buff, recovering account planner and best-selling writer. Putting his remarkably brilliant brain to good use, he ran major departments in agencies both large and small, from St Luke's to Ogilvy, penned plenty of influential industry tomes, including Herd and Copy, 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 and today Mark consults on human behaviour and behaviour change. He says, the space we need to worry about is the space between people, not the space between their ears. Welcome to the show, Mark. Heidi. Heidi. Right. Number one, Mac or PC? Mac. London or Frankfurt? Uh, London. St. Luke's or Ogilvy? St. Luke's. Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke? Ooh. Well, at the moment, it's more German... Berlin era Bowie for me, so Thin White Duke. Nice. Uh, learn or unlearn? Unlearn. Copying other people or outsourcing the cognitive load? Uh, outsourcing the cognitive load, because I love that phrase. That yeah, I... same, same. I'm pleased you chose that. Right, last one. There's always one ridiculous one. Uh, Jack Wilshire or John Wilshire? Oh, John Wilshire every time. Easy. You sailed through those, Mark. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Lovely. So to start the show, we always ask every guest about their path to where they are now. So can you tell us, how did it start for you? It started for me in Mr. Patel's um, Indian grocery shop opposite the church where I grew up in North London. And that was my first ever job. And I was really shit at it. Um, because I understood nothing about either either the English names for spices or the um, or Hindi words or Gujarati words for them either. So I had no idea, no idea. So I was really useless. Um, I, later on, I um, when I left university, uh, knowing not what to do with myself, I had uh, been working as a tour guide during the holidays. And so I carried on doing that for a bit, um, taking Americans around Europe and emptying their wallets of their dollars, um, which I really enjoyed. Where, whereabouts were, were your tours? It uh, doesn't really matter. Where would you like to go? I'd take you there, <laughs> as the song says. I'd really love Uh Yes, I did find myself going to places I'd never been to before and having to pretend that I'd been there before. Uh, but one of the first things we were taught in, in tour guide boot camp was how to ask in whatever language um, you find your country you find yourself in, how to ask, uh, look at me, hello, don't, uh, don't point when I ask you this question, but pretend you think you know me. Where is the museum? Stroke train station, stroke hopeful, papal residence, stroke whatever it might be. Yeah, so we, we learned to bullshit quite well early on. 
Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. And did you say that was post-university? It was during university and, and after as well. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. And um, to be honest, uh, my drinking buddy, when I was in my final year, because I did languages and uh, philosophy at university, I, 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 in my final year, my drinking buddy, um, who introduced me to the martini, uh, Jamie, who was very, very posh, said to me, after six months of him doing a graduate trainee job at FCB, which I, I think that's part of Publicist now, he uh, he said, listen, I, I, I hate this advertising lark. It's so superficial. I'm off to be an investment banker. I think you'd like advertising. So, which I thought was not really very flattering. But I then... None taken. <laughs> it's exact point taken. So then I went... Uh, I went off and uh, applied. I wrote 60-odd letters and got offered a couple of jobs and and started at Grey as a graduate trainee. And um, But within weeks there, there was then days when they used to do proper training of people. And I spent a month in the planning department and I didn't want to leave. And I got adopted by the two brilliant people who were running that department at the time. Jamie Dow was my particular mentor. And then Lu- Leslie Walsh was the other one who only retired a few years ago. And they... Um, they took me under their wings and taught me how to do things like I did my first focus groups there and ran up a huge amount of money on the dial-up for um, TGI analysis um, on the computer. So I just loved that. And uh, that's where I really started. It seemed to be a strange mix of creativity analysis and sort of detective work. Well, in one of um, the Father Brown short stories, you know, Father Brown, the, the Catholic priest that uh, Chesterton invented. Yeah. He says, you know, the real secret of being a detective is the is to know that you like the uh, whoever committed the crime, the the vic- the um, uh, evil person is um, grim. Is um, you are both sinners, and because you start from there, you can feel what it's like to be the person if you use your imagination. And so that's the, that was the third piece of the picture of me in working in in advertising. Yes, creative. Yes, analytic. Used my brain in both ways. But also there was this thing about detective understanding what it's like to be this person that you're supposed to be targeting. Before Jamie told you it was a superficial world of advertising, had you at all ever even been aware or considered the industry prior to starting at Grey? No, not in the slightest, ever. Um, I had no idea um, what it was um, or, or who was who and just didn't, you know, I thought maybe I was going to do a doctorate and something like that, and then I'd maybe find some something, somebody would get me to write something, I don't know. I had no idea what I was going to do. I did try a few months sitting in a lawyer's office collecting debts, which was just shit. As fun as it sounds, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, and, and being a tour guide was great fun. You know, you have 50 people on the bus depending on you for, you know, their, their very existence, and you telling them any old nonsense and they'll believe it. So, yeah, but I couldn't do that forever, right? That was the thing, I said, you know, like I'm... I'm I can't imagine being 30, but I certainly see some of these old lags running around like old rock stars um, who never quite made it, being slightly bitter and cynical about the world, and I didn't want to be like that. So um, that's where Jamie's prompt of you might have the superficial world of appetite. Given you wrote 60-odd letters, it's not a bad place to end up, Gray. It was really good. It was a bit dull at the time, to be honest. It was grey by name, grey by nature was what everyone said. It was. Oh, is that right? But it was really thorough. They had big, you know, big sort of FMCG clients like Procter and and Beecham's now GSK and uh, some really lovely brands to work on. And then they also had um, Mercedes as well. They did the Mercedes top end press stuff. So that was it. Was a really interesting, interesting place to be. And I met some great people there. Funnily enough, none of the three of us. Um, who started as graduate trainees that year, ended up 
doing the account management jobs that we were supposed to do. So one is Kirsten Dougal-Biggs run, has run and now sold, I think, a, a research agency. And the other one, Tiggy, um, Cadwallader, I think her name is, uh, Tiggy went off and she was a successful commercials producer. And there's me end up as the herdmeister, so goodness knows. Fantastic. And how did you morph into the herdmeister? When, at what stage did you start thinking beyond advertising and into society and behavior and culture? Great question. Um, so I was told uh, early on in my career, so my first proper planning job was at BMP, before it even became BMP DDB, what's now Adneve DDB. Um, and I worked for Paul Feldwick, who was a, just the loveliest man. He intimidated the hell out of me because he was so smart. And I worked out later also a bit shy. So, um, but he's, he was a fantastic boss to have because I used to tangle myself up in knots. And he said, listen, you just have to go and read. If you want to argue with Millward Brown uh, or research agencies um, or clients about the strategies and the effectiveness, you're going to have to understand the models that lie behind their tools better than they do. So you have to go and... So basically, I became a, a psychology and behavior, uh, behavioral sciences geek, self-taught. And at that point, and that is sort of two or three years into my career. And I kept being interested in it. And I was lucky enough to come in through BMP and Paul um, in, in contact with Andrew Ehrenberg, whose name is meant to the uh, Ehrenberg Bass Institute, which uh, generates so much um, noise at the moment about um, about distinctiveness or, dis- or distinctiveness. And- like differentiation. And, yeah, yeah. yeah and so, um, but Andrew was brilliant and he was the loveliest the loveliest man i interviewed him as a sort of tribute for my first book um and he he spent ages doing the same basically the same calculations with data from different markets to show that there's some really straightforward things that and and that became a real juice for me so he for example told me about taught me about how normally attitude change follows behavior change and not the other way around and that's a really important, like, big principle. Normally, we don't take on information, think about things differently, and then decide to act differently. It mostly doesn't work like that. Mostly works the other way around. And we're grossly simplifying here, but the bias is certainly towards the way that Andrew disrupts it in all the work I've ever done, which is that we do stuff for whatever reason and then justify it to ourselves. And And... You know, well, in the um, in the eighties reunion movie, The Big Chill, Jeff Goldblum plays a cynical, cynical New York journalist, and he says, um, "Post rationalization, which is what we do when we justify to ourselves what we've just done, um, and create a new attitude. Post rationalization is more important than sex." He says, "And when did you last go for a whole week without a really juicy post rationalization of your own behaviour? We do it all the time, right? And and I think that." So what I'm giving you there is an example of the kind of thing that being a geek in behavioral science can really give you a really useful principle. Because if that's the case, behavior change is the predecessor, not the product of attitude change, then um, you start designing strategies differently. You start getting actually what we need to do is make people feel this thing or we maybe, maybe get people to do something and then give them the reasons to justify the choice they've made afterwards. And and then you you research things differently. You research the ad differently. It's not looking to persuade people as we as as people still say now, um, but did then. It's not about getting 
persuasion going on. It's not even about awareness. It's about justifying to themselves the fact that this is something that people like me do. That seems like a good thing to do. So that's our kind of start point. And it, and it really, from there, it continued and uh, through the various jobs that I did. And when I got to St. Luke's, it's really interesting because I was elected a couple of times as the, it was an employee-owned company at the time. Which was very radical, and it was we we scared the shit out of people because we like it. We felt and we acted deliberately a bit like a cult. Um, no, we didn't have any offices. This is before hot desking. We didn't. Um, uh, every employee owned a bit of the business, so it wasn't just the names above the door who um, who benefited from any financial uh, performance. In fact, we all allocated equally the same amount in each year. So if you're a, if you're a member of staff, you get the same amount whether you're the chief exec or whether you're the junior person. And also then we engage with other bigger issues. Like I did a lot of work with The Space, who are a brilliant contemporary dance place and just happened to be our neighbours, and therefore with the contemporary dance. Equally did a lot of stuff. Because we were so weird, I found myself talking in the ad world about stuff. And my it gave me a platform to give the market research world a good old bashing. Um, I was once called the market research industry's public enemy number one. I'm still really proud of. That wasn't Jamie again, was it? It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. No, but I, I tell you what, it's um, it, it has turned out in really interestingly. So I chose to to because of being a planner, I chose to look at that and look at the 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 ideas in the market research world, and to use that as a lever to open up other stuff, to open up creativity in the business, to open up how we thought about bigger social issues because we were effectively a social enterprise at St. Luke's. And to start to have conversations, you know, very, we, we were doing amazing stuff just before I arrived. They did the first, um, uh, first of the Blair policy launches, in fact, with the Brown policy, but, uh, Blair Brown policy launches. So it was, um, the, uh, new deal or the unemployed and, and, uh, having straightforward conversations because we didn't care firing boots because they didn't meet up to our standards at college. And having them follow us around, from following me around for 18 months, I've been told them, no, it's over. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen the reruns of Smack the Pony, that all-female comedy sketch show. Love it. Love it. So there's, there's a character in that who won't accept it's over, holds on to the boyfriend's leg as he walks around the park and gets dragged everywhere. Because she could change, you know, she could change. Uh, and that's what it was like, the marketing director that uh, we worked with then. Oh, we could change, we'd give you this. No, I'm not interested. You're not right for us. It's not us, it's you. There, I mean, I'm going to force a kind of rewind on you there. Going back to where you talked about working with Paul Feldwick. Yeah. A huge fan of Paul Feldwick, and I think most people listening probably are, uh, had the pleasure of welcoming him on the, the show last year. That was a great talk. Heard that one. It was brilliant. He was funny enough, Paul's Barclay card ads are one of the first ads I kind of truly remember as being just fascinated and inspired by. Oh, Really? Yeah, Paul, Paul said to you something along the lines of you have to understand the models better than they do. Yes. And you may have already hinted at an answer because you latterly then talk about behaving more like a cult. But how do you manage uh, the conversations that then happen when you understand models better than the person you're communicating with? Because there's inevitably going to be some friction. So, so absolutely. So um, I think, again, just as with the discussion about how communication works, um, I think when you're having, um, you're looking to change the behaviour of somebody that you're working with. It's not about persuading them to do something. You need to you need to understand why they are 
why they are doing X, Y, and Z, what's the assumptions they've got going on. There may be some personal shit going on, like they don't want to feel embarrassed, they don't want to be shown up. And that's, that's always really important to remember, right? When you're, when you're trying to get anyone to change their behavior at any negotiation. And then you get them to do stuff. Yes, could we just try this? Yes, yes, yes. You know, keep your standard question. But I'm really interested in the issue about, for example, about would you tell your friends about it? Or instead of this is for people like me, is it for what? Yeah, is it for lots of people seem to be using this kind of thing nowadays? That kind of because that was if I'm in my herd mindset, that would be the kind of thing I'd be talking about. So you have to both understand the models better. You have to understand what why people are saying what they're saying both at the conceptual level, but also at their personal motivations, and never make anyone look stupid if you can help it. I have done, I'm afraid, once or twice when I've lost motivation. And thirdly, give them something to do, which allows them to then then move on action, and then we can review it later. Isn't that a useful me- metric? Yes, it turns out. What a brilliant idea, Moore or Brown, to use that. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I love it. Brilliant. There's one fundamental truth that I want to dig into, and I'm, I am mindful of, as I said to you before the show, before we started recording, that it is a path that you have trodden numerous times, but it is something that I think Not is a- significant, and that's that fundamental truth of we versus me. Yes. Can you explain to our listeners that truth and how you know we're wrong to think of ourselves as, as, as truly individuals? Okay, so I think the simplest way to think about it is to use the story of how it came about. One of my heroes um, uh, is a woman called Wendy Gordon, who was a researcher, the same generation as Paul Feldwick. Absolutely brilliant researcher and innovator in the world of marketing and market research. Absolutely brilliant. She recently retired a few years ago. But she was uh, she was a real inspiration to me and, and a, a mentor as well. And she wrote a paper in about, I think it must have been, 2000 for the Market Research Society, and it got a lot of coverage, and I was blown away. It was called The 21st Century Consumer. And I loved that idea, The 21st Century Consumer. And I thought, bloody hell, what can I say now? Because I was going to do something like that. Um, And I mused on it for a bit, and then just looked at the words. And as so often happens when these things happen, it's when you're least expecting it that the thing gets unlocked. The 21st century consumer, as if it was just one person acting on their own. And at the time, I'd been doing a lot of work across cultures um, in various ways, and it just occurred to me that maybe that was the thing. Maybe it wasn't, maybe the whole thing was about we in the West, in the Anglo Saxon world, assume that the right level of observation for humans is the individual acting independently on their own. In fact, we say when people, you know, your mum tells you off. You'd run under that, uh, run under that bus if your mates told you to, and you go, "Yeah, I would." Yeah, and that's because we're social creatures, not individuals. The rest of the world, whether it's Latin world, whether it's Africa, whether it's uh, the Middle East, whether it's um, uh, Asia, whether it's uh, indigenous tribes in North America or in um, in Southern America, wherever you look, wherever you look. Most other cultures outside the Anglosphere treat human beings as fundamentally a social creature rather than an individual. But we have this illusion, right? And that seems wrong to us. And there are two reasons why it's an illusion. One of which is that our culture tells us, no, 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 you should be an individual. You should make your own mind up. You shouldn't do what other people do. You shouldn't just take it for granted that, that other people are right. You shouldn't just follow whatever some influencer says on Facebook. You shouldn't do that. 
You should make your own mind up. Consider the facts and, and make a good choice. So that's the one thing. It's our culture. And the second thing is we only experience the world as if it was us making decisions. You know that, that very often have the conversation with people um, who don't work in advertising or even uh, people who do sometimes I've had this conversation say, oh, of course, I'm not affected by advertising me. It doesn't work on me, advertising. I make very good, I choose the best thing. The best thing is the thing that I, cho- I just look, I research it really well and I choose the best. Um, and that's that's all very good. But, you know, late subsequent work I did proves that that is just not true in virtually any market that we uh, I've ever been involved in. So we have this illusion of I, which comes from our culture and comes from our actual experience, the way that our, our um, cognitive mind is, is created in our experience of our lives. We have the illusion that we're in control. And yet the rest of the world says no. So we're a we species with the illusion of I. And um, funny enough, you just reminded me in terms of the kind of social aspect. We recorded an episode with Kirti Nair, who's who's um, yeah. wonderful. She's she's currently she's now at Publicist. She was at Kellogg, yeah. and she told the story of trying to launch. I think it was the pyramid tea bag into a. Um, it may have been an African culture. Excuse me if I've got that wrong, though, Kirti. And they thought the they they found the idea of making a cup of tea for one just completely baffling and contrary to their own reasons and experience of making a cup of tea as a kind of social uh, process and a social thing. And it was I just always loved that story. And it, as you I love that. alluded to there, it's that experience of other cultures and parts of the world where you can actually really see some truth. I think the problem is so. So let's put aside the sort of the the physiological sort of brain science bit of it for the moment. The cultural bit, I think, is really important. We often don't see that because we swim through culture like a fish swim through water. It's just there, right? It's just obvious. Like the way you lay stuff out on the plate is most one of the easiest ways to think about this. That's what a dinner looks like. In most of the Anglosphere, a proper dinner, unless you go in fancy and foreign, is a piece of protein, a carbohydrate, and one or more other things, vegetables. Yeah. That's it. And it's all arranged on one plate. Now, you know, in many other cultures that it's not just that it's not just that that isn't the main, the way, the main ingredients of a meal, um, but also it's not the way that you organize. It's not three separate sections with different bits in it. It's probably lots of sections and quite often none of them have a protein in it. It's just how it goes. Um, and sometimes it's all protein. Or, and sometimes it's mostly carbohydrate. Think about Italy and pasta. I mean, that's... So, so my point is that basically, when you're swimming through a culture, you don't see it. And you need to take this sort of alien perspective and go, why the hell are they doing that? What's that about? Why do we think that is natural? I'm always very suspicious, and this is one of the things, one of the few things that my philosophy um, undergraduate studies gave me it was a sp- suspicion of what um, the from nature arguments. It's the natural thing to do. It's natural thing to do, and um, it's always a bit of a post rationalization. Always ignores the fact that there's probably a heavy dose of culture in there. That uh, and culture is the most magnificent thing, and the thing that we don't put into our models um, of how human beings operate. Because it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and it's hard to get to groups with. If you've done any work, for example, writing, I'm writing a book at the moment about time, 
done any work across cultures, you'll know that actually the notion of a time to meet is very different in different different places. In Mexico, there's this thing called the Mexican hour, which is not an hour. Um, it's mostly in Mexico, but it just can be any time, really. It stretches from maybe up to three hours either side. Um, or you look at how people use time in the workplace in done a lot of work in India in the last few years and um and I, I particularly in, in Mumbai and what's fascinating um to me is to see my American colleagues getting really frustrated with the the way that the Indians faff around as they they might pull actually something more more direct than that but um, uh, that actually social interaction is a key part of work the workplace and achieving tasks and tasks can be the timing for tasks is not about achieving them efficiently. It's about doing them in a certain way that's really important to people in that culture. So, I look, I, I think cross-cultural stuff is a big bit missing from our map, and I am fed up to the back teeth of those um, of the behavioral economist, economist maps that are produced, which always have ev as if everything was in the brain. And culture is such a big deal, uh, and it's it's more important than we can possibly imagine, and we don't realise that we we follow it every day. I um I'll just say quickly. I lived in Indonesia for a couple of years, and I'm very familiar with rubber time. Right. Oh, well, there you go. Rubber time is another great example. Another great example. It's just you know, and it's uh, and that's so we talked about two things: we talked about food, and we talked about time. Let's now think about attractiveness. What makes sexual attractiveness work in different cultures? A. If you go to the National Portrait Gallery, you see it changes over time in the UK alone, in the English upper classes. But then you go across culture and you go, it also changes, also is, sometimes changes really fast, sometimes slow, but it's always different from quite what we thought. Does it also affect the means in which we communicate and the context in which we communicate? Because there's a lovely quote from you, which I'll just read now. We are a we species who do individually what we do largely because of each other. And I wonder, were you a very early... Uh, cynic, for want of a better word, uh, of the kind of one-to-one -one digital ad targeting technologies. Uh, yes, sir. One hundred percent. I was an early, an early cynic of it, and that was one of the theological struggles that um, I had with the Ogilvy world, who are obsessed with selling CRM programs to corporates, uh, particularly with trying to get D to C CRM working, which it really rarely does. So, so yeah, I'm really wrong. I'm really. Uh, I think people in the advertising and marketing world mistake the means for communi of communication for um, the mechanism that lies behind it. Right. So, and let me explain that. So, television is uh, yes, it has certain characteristics. It's video normally, and it's got audio on it normally, and it's broadcast. Um, mechanic behind it has historically actually been quite social. In that we know that every it's a public thing. It's and that, that you know other languages like French and Spanish then uh, use publicity rather than um, uh, talk about advertising. Letters can be fantastic, and I worked loved the Royal Mail. My team at, at Bates did the I saw the I saw this and thought of you work, and I did the with John Wilshire did the stuff that but that leads the Royal Mail campaign right now, which are about a real medium that's something that's tangible in, in the word of digital. Stuff. So it's really important. But the mechanic is not targeting, is not efficiency, is not just reach, which is what the um, the TV people might say. It's how people use the thing that you're giving them in the channel that they're using and how they're using that channel. So that's much more important than than um, 
then you know television has got high definition yeah you know or you can you can find you know seriously you can you can use um some really clever stuff to make your door drops more accurate just just so uninteresting the real thing is how people use the thing that you give them and the in the medium that they're using it and how that fits into the rest of their lives and particularly the decision making or lack of decision making around the thing that you're the category you're working in there's another interesting point on that that's just popped into my head and i feel like i because i've lived through it as as has as you have and probably countless of my listeners the idea that you're all watching television at the same time as everyone else and being able to say to someone the next morning did you watch whatever it was at 9 p.m on itv this has kind of gone with the the way tv is typically consumed nowadays and there's a huge thing that's missing now because of that and something that we actually um, I was quite lucky in uh, something we started during lockdown called Isolated Talks. They were brilliant, way. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Great idea that Jess Gregson had, which was introducing a kind of community of people listening to music at the same time, yeah, yeah. was then adopted by Isolated Talks. So it was kind of um, a collaboration of sorts, but credit goes to Jess, not me for that one. And it yeah, was amazing I... how powerful it was to, to know everyone was listening to the same music at the same time. Totally. And, it, it feels strange that we almost need to justify that with logic to out uh, battle, if you want, the the debates that might be happening in boardrooms as to why we should be looking into that type of media and experience over something that's more targeted. But I guess that comes back to your um, your advice from Paul Feldwick and your great answer to how do you have those conversations without friction. Yeah, well, I mean, I have been rude to the direct um, marketing world repeatedly. I, I doubt that for one yeah. second. <laughs> But, you know, um, uh, that's, you know, I choose my provocations deliberately when it's the time then to have a, uh, after the provocation, we can deal with something. But the, um, the you know, the, I think I think that's right. I, I think that the, um, I say to talk to a brilliant example of that. I was in a car dealership this morning because they've, um, I, I don't know if you have um, a car with a, um, well, a key fob that you can lock remotely. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those. And and there's been lots of cars. I had one stolen um, a few years ago um, by someone hacking the key fob. So there's been a, some a, some uh, security breach. There's computer update and blah, blah, blah. So I had to take it in this morning. And I was talking to them while I was waiting them to do this. I was talking to one of the sales guys and a customer. And the, these two guys were bonding over um, that the third series of um, that, what's it called? That brilliant um, series about Southeast London. Uh, top boy yeah and 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 i'd seen i watched two series of it haven't watched the third one yet and uh and the sales guy was just raving about it it's just brilliant and blah, blah, and the other guy saying yeah, just don't don't this man i've got i'm waiting to the weekend and i'm gonna binge it and and um and what was interesting about that is that it's still a social object yes and when you experience it you're not just experiencing it on your own it won't be literally simultaneous to everyone else but you know that other people either have or will experience this thing and it'll be a shared cultural reference point i mean that's what that's what content like that does as like lots of things in our world do give us social uh, enable social interaction enable social identification enable lines between this group and that group enable us to some stay sane in the world of, of nonsense that we uh, that most modern life is uh, is to know that there are other people out there yeah um, and and it's it's a really you know if we follow my my sort of description of human beings as being fundamentally social and we species suffering the illusion of I 
then you can see that just about everything we do is going to be shaped by other people, real, present, uh, distant, remote, imagined, conjured, um, stereotyped. It doesn't matter. We're still using other people in, in ways to live our lives and, and create meaning from the stuff that we, we do. And we find lots of opportunities, which is why, you know, it's not just that, you know, um, as Blur once said, modern life is rubbish, but the live music scene in the UK despite the best efforts of the brewers and the um, landlords during the lockdown, has continued to boom. Festivals are just extraordinary phenomenon now. Mm-hmm. It's not just that, you know, a small part of the population go off to Reading. Um, I never did do Reading, but I always hated that kind of thing. But, you know, there's huge, huge, it's a thing. People go and they go with on their own as part of the uh, ritual of leaving school or college and they go with their friends for years and they take their kids and it's just, it's a thing. Live music is such an important thing for people. And why we want to do things like, you know, watch movies in the summer, movies in the park or whatever it might be. Uh, it's just such a, it's such a big deal for humanity uh, and because of who we are. Um, and that, that when we think about media choices, we need to remember that that's a really powerful, really powerful mechanic that lies behind whatever is the, the medium you're thinking of. Definitely. I adore stand-up comedy and spend yeah. a lot of my time watching stand-up comedy, but I can't watch it if I'm on my own because I don't find it as funny. Actually, that's fascinating. I like that. That's I'd not thought about that before, but I completely agree. Um, I think there is a thing with the doom scrolling um, that people do. You see is a clip from this. I'm not sure how funny, how much of a laugh you get if you are mentally viewing this on your own. Yeah clip from you know some comedy store thing i think i i I probably find it just as funny i don't enjoy it in the same way i think it's probably the the difference i don't know what the subtlety there is i'm sure you can work it out no 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 i I think that's right so i've um i've been i've pondered for a long time with the rise of people like um uh bill bailey um and so on the sort of the mega comics in the english language and finding I found it really hard. The DVD products seem really strange because the whole point is not to watch it just the once, if it's a DVD, right? Or And you can watch it on your own and you don't have that feeling that you have being surrounded by other people. really good mate of mine is a brilliant actor, Danny Sapani, um, and he and uh, Adrian Lester did a two-hander at the Almeida Theatre just before Lockdown. They were they'd written had it written by Adrian's wife and rehearsed it and were about to launch and then lockdown happened and so they re choreographed it for it's a two two handed re choreographed it to be done um, as a live stream during lockdown which they did and it was brilliant and then it was the first thing the Almeida Theatre put on afterwards and one of the things that it reminded well I love the show and it's a bit like watching good telly with a mate really good telly when you see a live cast from the live stream from a, from a theatre like that. But when you're sitting in the audience, when you're sitting there and you, and you feel with, uh, at a below a level of conscious thought, you feel other people's reactions. It's an entirely different experience. And I'm talking about theatre here, but I think the same is true of comedy and of music. That there's something really important. It's why the Greeks, for example, created those amphitheaters. It wasn't just so the voice could carry it, so that you could sense other people's experience. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never thought about that. I, there's it's key part of it. Other people are everything, and much as they lead us astray, they also it is everything. It is our lives, and and sort of accepting that I think is a really important part of 
being human, getting out of this Anglo-Saxon bubble that so twists our, our views about the world and then our, then our actions. I, again, mentioned to you before we started recording, we've had um, uh, an incredible amount of listener questions that have come in. And I, and I feel just from skimming them now that we're going to revisit this topic, at least loosely, in a few minutes' time. So before we do revisit this topic, because we've got more time to dig there, I want to talk about copying. Yes. Obviously, you've written copy, copy, copy. What got you interested in the concept of copying when it comes to creativity? I guess I'm quite contrarian. So on the one hand, when someone says to me, um, this is how it is, I really want to just dig around and see, is that the case? Just as I responded to um, to Wendy Gordon and Ginny Valentine's paper, The 21st Century Consumer, I said, there's something else there that you're not seeing. The is the answer. Let's focus on that. So in this case, I'm I'm also... Um, I was also prompted by the endless twaddle about originality and um, the genius of the, my mates who happened to be in the creative department rather than in whatever department I worked in at the time. Um, and this infantilization of the creative genius, um, in particular in our ad agencies, was something used to really get my goat. Um, why can't they book their own train tickets? What's wrong with them? Um, you too can make coffee. Um, you know, you do when I'm not here. Why don't you do that? Um, so, um, so is that kind of stuff that really um, that really uh, just gets my got my goat? So, when prompted by that stuff, I started to think. So, how does creativity really work? And at St. Luke's, we are really keen to um, embrace and champion creativity in all its forms and we did lots of really some really cool and some really stupid stuff um, but one of the most important things that we did was make it easy for people to to take responsibility collaboratively for a project so you know we pass responsibility for having ideas way down the process and uh, way down the hierarchy and make sure that you know the young people really do you support them and and one of the things that I noticed in doing that was that that this idea of copying, uh, this idea, we we were terribly worried. These young people, they go, oh no, that would that's something that's been done before, and, and so it's copying. It's it's not original. And you're just reading around, and very quickly you discover that that's not how, that's not how um, either things spread through populations, ideas, and so on. They they don't spread through being completely original. Everyone standing up and saluting and go, well done, you are a genius. It's totally original. Um, and no artist of any worth has ever suggested as as much. You know, Picasso, um, as as Faris and Rosie will tell you, um, was very fond of stealing from other people. And you know, T. S. Eliot said, uh, "The point is not whether uh, the difference between a great poet and an average poet is not whether one steals and the other one doesn't. Is that what they do with the stuff they steal and where they take it from?" And um, so it became, as a picture, it became more interesting to me. And as I was doing more innovation work after Ogilvy, I found myself just being really frustrated with the frustration people had going, well, that's not really original, is it? go, well, nothing is, really. So um, that's a long way around to say, listen, copying is a central part of creativity, innovation. It's how things spread through populations, more importantly. And even more importantly than that, and this is sort of where the, um, the behavioral science comes in, it's how we learn almost everything that we learn in our lives. From when we were kids to um, how you ride a bike, 
yes, there's some personal experience in there, but it's actually by copying other people. And we do it all the time. We do it without knowing that we do it. We do it without even being prepared to admit it to ourselves much of the time. So copying, and, and I, I use the word copy, deliberately provocative. You know, there are lots of other words I could use like emulate or social learning is the good euphemism in, in the social sciences. Um, uh, but stealing is a nice provocative one. But I chose copy and I, I you know, wrote a book saying copy, copy, copy to make it triply provocative and, and unacceptable to people. Time, weather and... We interrupt this podcast as we thought your ears had suffered enough of the monotone ramblings of the host. Now this is a voice. Most pods drop an ad into these interruptions, not gasp. We won't awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host at giles at gasp.agency to talk client retention and brand positioning like other companies did just the other day. Let's get you back to the show. The story starts, she said with glee, with a wizard chimpanzee. Oh, the beautifully voiced Gem reading Gas Book. Adele writes an ad there, but not what we're after. Hang on. Funny enough, I there was going go. to mention Rosie and Faris when I put the question to you, oh, right. more, more specifically Genius Steals. But I didn't want to lead you down a particular path, but I'm pleased you went there. And there's a quote that I, funny enough, was going to use in your intro, but I was aware that it didn't really make as much sense out of this context. But I still love it, and I'm going to say it now. Think about what kind of problem you're trying to solve and who else in other fields and other contexts might have faced that same kind of problem. I love the idea of what kind of problem, and I think I've heard you just say what kind of thing is it yes. that we're trying to solve here. But you know, that's what a triage nurse or medical team does. What kind of problem have we got here? And therefore, what, should we, what kind of ways should we go about treating it? Yeah. How should we approach this? Uh, and treating every problem as unique, which is very flattering both to the problem owner, the client, uh, and to the geniuses, the absolute stone-dead geniuses who are only people in the planet who could possibly solve this problem. Uh, yeah, it's really flattering to everybody involved. But frankly, it's not a problem that is unique and has never happened before. Do you think that is the problem then, ego? Do you think it's like an ego reason why we don't talk about copying? And we don't mean copying, you know, we don't mean plagiarism, and I think you've made that very clear. No, no. But do you think it is ego that makes us uncomfortable with the idea of... I also think it's our culture, our culture of individualism in particular. So see what I did there, I moved from psychology yes. to culture. I'm glad someone knows how to control it. <laughs> that's really, um, that's really, uh, that's really, I think the big deal is our culture is about individualism. About about uniqueness, and yet we do like to um, we do like to to refer to traditions, but they're separate from having ideas and solving problems. And we have heroic figures who solve problems, whether they're creative geniuses or engineering geniuses. Or Semmelweis is the guy who um, discovered ways to to make uh, hygiene in hospitals much much better. That Mark Rylance is playing him on stage in London at the moment. I went and saw it last week. Oh, did you? I'm on next week, so I'm looking looking for it. Is it good? I, I could watch Mark Rylance walking around a room talking to himself and I'd love it. I, I can watch Mark Rylance just sitting there. I went without knowing what it was, just knowing it was Mark Rylance, genuinely. Yeah. I, ad I adore him. But yeah, it's fantastic and it's a story I wasn't familiar with and I'm, and I'm pleased I am now. It's a great story, right? So there's a genius man, guy, working against the system. Nobody believes him. He has to try this and that. That's a great heroic story and that's what our culture loves. That's not true in all cultures. 
And all cultures, actually, other cultures, a lot of the time, would, would actually describe their story slightly differently. But that's our culture, that we like to tell the story of the unique genius who solved this tricky problem, fighting against the, a hero's journey, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, that's how we think about it. And we need to be wary of those kind of culturally hidden, invisible cultural assumptions about how the world is and the kind of thing that makes sense to us. Again, back to my, it feels natural that someone who would be um, really clever and smart and brave would keep doing this thing and eventually everyone would realise what a genius he was. Just be wary of things. When you when you come across stories like that, just be wary. In terms of examples of copying being at the heart of creativity, I have was listening to a podcast that you recorded, I think about five years ago now, and you told a brilliant story of Professor Martin Elliott, yes. who effectively took those protocols from Formula One pit stop crews and took that into the pediatric wards of, of surgery, cardiac surgery with huge, huge, like um, incredible positive effects, right? So it's not, it, it, when, you, when you talk about what kind of thing or what kind of problem this is, you do really mean taking a problem from one context and lifting it quite far away from that original context. I think that's right. I mean, you know, T.S. Eliot's thing about poetry, great poets not only copy um, and do something with it, but they take it from a long way away, the furthest place you could possibly imagine. And I think solving a problem in in cardiac surgery in Great Ormond Street and therefore around the world by going to Formula One pit stops is just, that's a long way. It's a really long way. And that's the kind of thing that you need, I, I mean, by what kind of problem. That's what it enables you, asking that kind of thing. I've got to say, my friend John Wilshire hated that that phrase when I started using it. Kinda, really, he really hated it just because he felt this is just cheap and American, and um, which reveals something about his cultural preferences. <laughs> uh, um, love him, uh, he, uh, but he eventually accepted it, and, and it's it's just a useful um, it's a useful artifact, a marker when you have a conversation or you're doing a project or working with people to remind you we need to get we need to try a triage this problem triage the brief in order to then to have a good chance of finding new and interesting solutions um, and if we don't triage the brief we're just throwing things against the wall and see what might or might not stick yeah i i think um i was about to try and empathize with john there which i perhaps <laughs> not sure if i'm not sure if i truly do but I, but i think i think there's lots of issues in our industry where language is overly dressy and there's something so brilliantly accessible about what kind of problem or what kind of thing is this well i'm glad you think that because that's that's one of my one of my sort of i don't know whether it's a passion it's a mission i guess is to give people tools better tools for thinking about things they're doing and better tools for doing the things they're trying to do um they haven't i don't know when it happened to me but at some point i realized that whilst i was pretty smart and pretty inventive um i no longer had to be the smartest person in the room if anything was going to change other people would have to feel they were smart and so my role went from being the genius i can still do that if you you know if you pay me enough and, and i've got enough gin but um um uh but actually my job is to help other people and i that, guess that's the writing and the talking and the workshops and all that comes from help other people see um, the world differently. Give them different tools. Heard was the, I guess, and really the big breakthrough on that 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 book because it gave people a different map of how people, how the people they're supposed to be dealing with actually work. Yeah, and, and some tools to to 
to do it. And some examples of how you might use that new map to create new va- great new value. Yeah, it's a good mission to have. I'm going to go to listen to questions now, Mark. Oh, there are. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. We've got a bumper catch to put to you, and I'm going to start with your good friend, John Wilshire. Yeah. John asks, John says, it's easy to fall in line with the, quote, everything is changing more quickly than ever narrative. What are three things that aren't changing? And Matt Ballantyne added, or even what three things are going backwards. So let's start with the first. Well, three things that are not changing. So the first one is that human beings aren't really changing. It's, we are we are who we are. And whilst it does seem like a lot of stuff has um, come into our lives in the last 100 years, 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, we're not really changing. We're still human. Uh, there's some stuff that you might look at the edges, um, things like, you know, we're now possible to detect changes in DNA from one within one generation, which is which is really interesting in for curing dealing with some diseases, cancers in particular. Um, but largely we're not, you know, and we too have a we do love, particularly in our culture, distinguishing between generations on the basis of attitude or behavior. And um, I think that's really unhelpful um, because it's largely not true. It's just an excuse to bully millennials, but, you know, they all deserve it. And uh, so that's one thing that's not changed. Human beings, we are social creatures. We always have been social creatures. We like being together. We also hate being together, and we like building tribes against each other and finding excuses to um, to... Uh, patrol the borderlines between those tribes. That's never going to change. Um, secondly, um, our brains are um, still the same as they always were, so that despite we have more stuff, more choices in front of us, um, we still use the same mechanisms that we used before. Um, and that's where the work of you know the people like the Kahnemans and so of this world come into play. There's also something we wrote, we wrote about with Alex Bedney and Mike, Mike um, O'Brien, two um, academics that I, I did, I'll have what she's having. They, um, we dealt with the, a world of many choices, and the truth is that much of the time these choices aren't considered in the way that we imagine they are, but people just go, oh, that one, that one I had last week, yeah, let's do that again. The one I know of, yep. Yeah. The one that everyone else uses, yep. Yeah. The one that we use, yep. Yeah. The one that everyone seems to be talking about. These are really simple descriptions of how individuals make decisions, and and they then also map up on the basis the data that we've got from the choices that people make in lots of different markets. They map really clearly into that very simple four box two a four box that we two by two that um, that Alex and I invented and stuck in that. So um, people don't change. People are people, and the same human mechanics are there. Context might change a bit, um, so culture can change often a bit faster then. And the number of stimulus, but we still have the same mechanics underneath. So that's one thing. Second thing that's not changing is people bemoaning the advance of technology and what it's doing to us, how it's ruining our lives. It's a really interesting thing to consider how the the ancient Greeks were complaining about this, Plato complained about. What's going to happen when people no longer have to remember stuff, when they can use that writing thing, writing stuff down, recording and keeping notes, What's going to happen to us? 
destroys humanity. My dad has this terrible thing about um, tattoos, which he always says the barbarians at the gates when he sees a member of the family with a tattoo. And and that's a, that cry of barbarians at the gates is something that we hear again and again about technology. Uh, um, and uh, the third thing that's not that's not going to change is that we as an industry are incredibly excited about whatever just new shit has just appeared, more so than we could possibly be, and we are almost always wrong in our predictions about what actually happens. The result we're just we're neophiles, and it's it's lovely to see, and it's very rewarding for anyone who's got some little new flashing light thing, but. Um, that that's not going to change either because that's the culture in which most of us um, in this kind of industry work. Yeah, yeah, good answer. Yeah, we're all part magpie in this industry, it seems. Yeah, no, totally. And we always want to know the latest thing. I mean, it's partly, I mean, there's an underlying thing here which is to do with human nature, which is that we, and we see it in an oversupplied world and over-informed uh, world, is that we want complex problems to have simple solutions. Since... You know, Brexit is a great example of that. Simple solution to everything that's going wrong in the world, in my life, and everything. Brexit. Um, simple solution to um, a simple solution to uh, those Mexicans coming over gun laws. Simple solution to the lack of respect for me in my late middle age as a white man. Abortion, <laughs> whatever it might be. You see what I mean? And that's something to do with our approximate brain. It's what Daniel Kahneman called the lazy brain. By the way, I was the first person in marketing or business to include um, his lazy brain model in um, in a textbook. Nice. Gareth Kay asks, what's the most dangerous fallacy masquerading as fact in business or marketing and how do you excise it? So listen, I've got a thought here that um, will probably upset quite a lot of people. Great. That is to do with some of the stuff we've been talking about, which is what goes on between your ears is mostly bollocks. Um, and we keep assuming that it's the important stuff. Um, I would, you know, I would really like us to get rid of anything to do with cog science because most of it hasn't been replicated. Most of it is based on samples of American psychology undergrads um, and based on assumptions that are derived from Anglo-Saxon culture. So um, uh, I think we'd like to believe that psychology and behavioral economics suddenly gives us the key to, to everything, and it, it hasn't. It's a very partial view um, that's culturally yeah, limited. Awesome. Is that rude enough? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, also, let me say, one thing I really want to get rid of, really, really want to get rid of, is effing brain scans. Okay. Brain scans. Jesus. If I have to see another fMRI scan picture, see, this is lights up here. You go, and what do you expect to happen? Jesus. Some activity in the head. No, really. In that sort of area we know to do with that. Yes, really. That doesn't change it. It's like a reductionist thing. That if It's top trumps, you know. It also is often based on a really, really dodgy understanding of what that image is. That image isn't a photograph or a, vid or a film. It's a reconstruction of inputs to a machine which creates this, creates this, this image of a brain. And... The actual fMRIs are based on the iron that's in your hemoglobin showing up because it's more magnetized. That's what it does. Magnetic resonance, or I think it's magnetic resonance um, machine. That's what, they, that's what it's about. So can we have no more brain scans, please? And no more this lights up or left-hand, right-hand brain? It's just bollocks. 
honestly. The thing is, if you show someone a brain scan, it immediately looks very credible, doesn't it? Whatever you then accompany that rationale with. Well, I, I wonder whether we, we actually have to, you actually have to have a white coat yes. on. So if you're going to, like, like, you know, if you're handling a radioactive substance, you have to have the gauntlet. So I think, uh, and be in, in a full hazmat suit. So I think you put a white coat on if, if you're going to do that. And then we can all tell that you're not, as they used to say in the dent, in those, those toothpaste ads, hello, I'm not a dentist, but. Um, hello, I'm not a brain scientist, but well, I, even I'm a neuroscientist, but I know bugger all about human behavior because I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> Matt Ballantyne, he asked what modern marketing practice would, would you consign to history? So is it use of brain scans to support? Yeah, brain scans and, and cogn- cognitive neuroscience. Mostly, I mean, I have, there are lovely people that, that, that do this, Richard Shotton and Phil Barden and, and David Penn is brilliant at this stuff as well, and interpreting um, the cognitive neuroscience and, and making sense of it. However, I did, funny enough, I did look and use a, a an actual brain scan, and it was something that in one of Phil Barden's books, I think it was probably indicated, um, uh, where he kind of used the term no brainer when it was <laughs> representing the kind of cognitive load, to use uh, uh, your words uh, yeah. from that quite earlier, and why people will choose to opt for what is familiar aka known brands famous brands however you whichever you want to use some Feldwickisms there yeah. over something which is uncommon and unusual or, or unfamiliar even yeah I think that's right I think uh, uh, well look I mean you know Phil's got a lot of that stuff going on and he and I are mates so it's he won't be he won't be upset by this but I think it's um I think it generally speaking we take a bit of neuroscience which is in itself very partial and um, the cognitive bit of it um uh, uh, and how we understand that is often based on research that being very poorly replicated, if at all. Um, Joe Henrik, uh, who is this brilliant um, anthropologist um, who is a teacher, he's a prophet at Harvard now, um, created this um, description, what he called weird samples that uh, most um, social science, particularly um, cognitive neuroscience stuff, is based on. And weird is Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. In other words, it's basically Anglo-Saxon undergrads, and they're the least representative, least representative selection of the global population to reflect the rest of the population. And you know, twenty-two-year-old hormone-ridden um, philosophy undergrad, honestly, no. Yeah, it's a valid point. Very valid point. Let's turn the mood up and field one from Tom Morton, uh, who people will know from RGA Tom asks what are you most optimistic about I'm most optimistic about the people that have stuck it out in the ad industry and marketing um, uh, some amazing people doing amazing things and they've done it in different ways so people like my chum John Wilshire with his smithery work is I first knew him when he worked at, uh, at a you know, media agency PhD and we did some work together there and and subsequently um i persuaded him to leave that it's my fault and phd um but he's he's does amazing stuff and people like him are creating new ways of of doing what advertising agencies used to think they did i think that's really brilliant i think people that then go and create a better research tool whether it's the, the tracksuit guys you talked to in the last episode or whether it's people like Phil Barden, who's an ex-marketer. I think, again, that's really good. That's really great. 
those are people who are constantly innovating. One of my favorite is John Kieran, who um, is an ex-planner um, who started what's now System One. And he was constantly looking for new ways because he didn't believe what he'd been told about how advertising worked. And he hated Millwood Brown and the passion and their tracking studies. So he, um, yeah, no, so so people like that can constantly do it. And then, then people like, um, who prepared to stand up and, uh, and take a stand on shit, whether that's Cindy Gallup or Sarah Tate or whoever it is, they'd stand up and this, this is important. We need to do things differently. Um, uh, so there's a constant innovation there. My worry about that in, in optimism is sort of tempered by almost all of those people I've talked about don't work in agencies anymore. Correct. Uh, and, and that's the, that's the downside. It doesn't mean that people who work in agencies aren't innovative. Uh, and are the ones who are going to make change or make some change, but the really interesting stuff is coming from out with the agency world. And, um, if I was, if I was sitting, um, in one of the agency world industry bodies like the IPL, I would be significantly worried about the fact that we are no longer able to. If I was sitting at the top of WPP, I would, well, I wouldn't be worried about that. I'd be worried about lots of other things, but uh, it's a real big deal. How do you keep the agency innovate, agency world innovating from the inside and keep these people who are able to create huge amounts of value Um from leaving and going to do it themselves. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very real problem. And I think, you know, there's Ipsos data that would certainly back that point up and people's perception of, of ad execs. And it's something that, you know, we've been concerned about here if I'm, you know, brutally honest. And I think the um, the answer is, and maybe nodding back even to how you frame copying other people as outsourcing cognitive load, I, I think there's an argument that people are having to rebadge or reframe what it is they do and tear that agency sign down and call it something else, a consultancy yeah. or some form of practice in order to carry on doing the same thing with more credibility perhaps or certainly more effectiveness at the end I, of the day. I think that's right. I think that's right. So, But here's another thing which is uh, which comes back to the, the copying thing, which is there's a tendency, and I've seen it in various waves over the history of my history in advertising, a normative pressure. So we have to define, and when I started my career, what's an account planner was absolutely war zone as a debate and uh, you know the people at BMP believe that nobody else could do it and Abbott Mead Vickers were terrible and really weren't as good as us anyway they took one of our second rate planners and made him planning director block just really you know silly and arguments and then the APG was set up as an organisation to protect account planners who didn't exist in the safe places like BMP or Abbott Mead or JWT and it was a nice safe place to hide and away from the nasty people in agencies who didn't appreciate truth of it, account planning and its pure goodness um, would, would give. So there's a huge debate then and then there were lots of rows about it and then there were lots of rows again 10 years later and then 10 years later than that. And right now I can see it again on, on the Twitter sphere, um, the planosphere as, as Marcus calls it. Um, there's lots of lots of silly arguments about you know this, how what's the exactly right way to do it and how you should conform to this, why this is the way. Um, I think that's really unhelpful, and part of the issue that the um, part of the issue that um, the industry has always faces is that its buyers would like to be able to buy something easily, and therefore have it in known quantities, sizes, and qualities. But that leads to commoditization, and the you know ours is not a a one size fits all. No one project is exactly the same as the next. Um, and 
therefore we have to i think we have to encourage diversity in the definition of what that job is it makes it hard to hire if you have a particular take on what it is to be a planner for example or a particular view what it is to be a creative person um i was i was thinking about this when i was listening to that interview the session you did with laura jb who's a good mate as well and her story about coming through through from being a fine artist hanging out with fine artists doing digital stuff and then a bit in this and a free time doing that that magazine that hyper magazine was fantastic um and then finding a way through um through the agency world um what is it and now she's chief creative officer and um, what does that mean what does that mean honestly i mean she she is absolutely brilliant she's one of the best people that I've ever I've ever come across in the industry, and I've done a couple of things with her, which have just been an absolute delight and eye opener. But these sort of very tight definitions that are supposedly generalised, universalised of what this is, how an agency does what it does, it's really unhelpful to what is essentially a craft business, and um, craft businesses, you know, it's quite a lot of good good. Um, literature on this that craft businesses which have a very strict code eventually become really dead less exciting than they were flat and they don't get the, the talent it's very um the guy did the gift um i'm just honest i'm just with my bookshelf we'll stay there um too many books too little time uh, so there's a, there's a guy there's a notion that i know john wilshire introduced me to a long time ago which is that the Good master needs to run a, an open house. In other words, people need to come and go from one workshop to another workshop, bringing different things as they go. And in order to make that happen, yes, you need to have some discipline within your house, but you also need to have the ability to learn from different perspectives that are new to you and to pass on freely um, to other people the ways of doing things. Uh, and I'm just arguing, for, I think, for a much more um, idiosyncratic industry. I th- when I when I hear people talk about the advertising industry, I, I think there's very few people involved. None of the organisations are really very big in the practical level. There's just at best a bunch of people sitting around the table trying to solve a problem for a client with pens and to make some stuff. Can we make some stuff, please? I th- I think that we overcomplicate it and we um, we're a bit pompous about um, talking about the advertising industry or about the marketing industry or. I think things are rather less um, uh, less uh, grown up and serious than we than we would like them to be. Totally agree. Got a few more listener questions. I, I feel obliged to squeeze them all in. So let's go to yeah. good friend of or yours and and ours, uh, Liesl McDonald. Oh, lovely. Liesl asks, "You're a lover of both language and languages." If and how has being multilingual helped you understand people, communication, and culture? That's a brilliant um, thing from Liesl. Um and um, I think she's she's a really great champion of this. Speaking a number of a number of languages, including Thai, which you know is just a world beyond me. So I think the answer to the question of how has being uh, interested in languages and and language help me i think it's really helped me the second bit is help the language the way we talk about things i think has made me think harder about what we say and what we mean by what we say um 
and that maybe that's a bit too much um, English 20th century philosophy worrying about words and what words mean but I think it's really to be really clear and I, I do whilst I do like a lot of a lot of long words I also like as you know some really short ones because they're really easy to understand and usable by people so hence we talked before about the kind of thing question I think that's important the second part of this then is languages generally I think language uh, being interested in languages shows you interested in people who come from a different culture than yourself in order to speak another language, you have to get under the skin of the culture of the people who speak that language. And, you know, in uh, in my case, you know, I, I did three language A-levels. And um, since, and I did, I, I did but gave up a, an, another one at O-level. And since lockdown, I've been doing Welsh because um, my family are from there, but none of us speak Welsh. Um, and I've done eight and something days. I love the Welsh language. My family's Welsh too and similarly. Oh, really? Really, but well, I think I think it's really fascinating that uh, um, and challenging. Um, it's not just stimulating intellectually in the way that you know, elderly folk like myself are supposed to keep our brains going, doing crosswords and puzzles. I think it's missing that. Um, but I think I think more importantly, it makes you think really hard about what are the assumptions that are here. How do they? How what's it like to be a person who lives within this culture? Um, and what are the strands of it? Um, uh, and that is part of the ongoing inquiry I think that I have had since I work with since I work with Paul Felby to be honest uh, I have been really constantly on a quest to understand a bit more about how people do what they do and it makes me read a lot and listen to podcasts but I read a lot I spent last week in in Mallorca um, having a reading week but catch up on some books I, um, I need to get on top of for the next my next book um, and it was brilliant and I've come back with a notebook full of thoughts and ideas and references but that's if you're not interested in languages it's hard to be interested in the culture it becomes a sort of conceptual thing um, and it also keeps you apart from that culture you need to sort of be immersed in the other another culture to feel the, your your discomfort in order to understand where the where the walls and the ceilings and the doors are of another culture yeah 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 that's fantastic i um i might have told this story before but probably only once which is rare for me on this podcast good, good. i uh, i spent some time living in bilbao in a basque country oh, and yeah. when i arrived in basque country i thought i was arriving in spain which didn't go down too well with my basque flatmates when i first moved in to cut a long story short i learned literally only a handful of basque words including you know thank you in the basics and it was only when i used those words in a local bar that the whole town or the whole area i was yeah. based in of bilbao just welcomed me with open arms just just even acknowledging yes this language of theirs was the right language, or even existed i think just completely changed their demeanor their kind of willingness to accept that i was in their country i mean it was it was overwhelming mark i i literally mm. just saw the the most the hardened kind of stone faces all just turn into smiles and grins it was it was so powerful and so fascinating and that's probably there's probably a little bit more context especially when we're talking about basque country to your points about language and learning language but yeah no no to me it's always one that comes to mind absolutely the same deal absolutely the same deal you know when i go to work in in somewhere like Colombia, which I've done a few times in recent years, um, or in Peru, 
Uh, I speak no Spanish, basically. My, I'm really, always really embarrassed about the fact that I can't really speak Spanish. But I make an effort to have half a dozen really good phrases because if I've got that, I can then at least get reach out to people uh, or get people to see that I'm open to what's going on. You know, I've seen, I, you know, I always go when I do long haul trips as well. This is another thing because I'm, I'm constantly curious to find out stuff that I didn't know before. So I always say I'm going to have an extra day, hopefully the client pays for this, an extra day in the location that we're doing a workshop for a week. So an extra day. And what am I going to do with that extra day? I'm going to go and do something. A few years ago, I did a um, workshop for a bank in um, with the lovely people at System One uh, in Joburg. And we arrived there on the overnight flight. And they all wanted to go to the hotel and do their emails. Um, now, I happened to have read a couple of days before that there's a cave that had just been not just excavated, but open to the public, where some of the earliest human remains have been found. And there was a new museum of mankind. Um, about It's about an hour out of Joburg. So I said, what we're going to do is we're going to go and dump our bags, lads. We're going to shower. And then we're going to go up there. And just having the interest, the curiosity to find stuff that you haven't seen before, it creates a different picture and uh, of the, the place that you're in. I think that when you do this thing about taxi to airport, silver tube flying across the pond to another place which is an airport and a taxi to a hotel the taxi to the meeting meeting that hotel there's just it's no life to live and you can't possibly have any inspiration or understanding of the people you're dealing with unless you immerse yourself so i did a thing i can never done mine i just go on this i did a thing um in mumbai with a lovely lovely client yeah a american client that's based in the uk is my she's a become a dear friend um, and we were worried about this particular leadership team in India. We were quite smug about the fact that some of them had worked in consumer before and we were trying to get them to build a consumer business out. And um, and as you probably know, India is quite a caste-ridden society. And most people in senior middle management come from higher castes. You know, it's, it's fairly obvious. And their lives are cushioned from other people. So they thought they were going to spend a week in a darkened room with... Um, with PowerPoint charts and flip charts and lots of sticky paper. But um, we opened it by actually telling them that there was a line of tuk-tuks outside and they were to go and spend the day understanding the life of the tuk-tuk driver, their family, and how money fitted into their lives, what kept these people awake at night, and, and so on and so on. And they had to come back and report. And one of the guys came back and said, and he was virtually in tears, look, I've never, I've never really seen this. I've never really felt this. He go, these are your customers. These are the customers. They're not a C2DE manual worker, self-employed block. They're not. They're, your, they're people. And you have to like the people you're going to serve. And you have to find out about them all the time. You have to constantly do that. I often give people, set up senior execs with buddies that they can work with, that can listen to, they can find out what's going on in people's lives. It's not the same as formal market research or opinion poll, but what it does is give, create an empathy that, um, that's absolutely essential. And encourages the curiosity. That's fantastic. It's you know, it's more what they take from that rather than worrying it's not a significant piece of research. Yes, no, absolutely. It's not. It's not the same kind of thing. And but that's not the point, right? Um, uh, uh, you, you have we have the opportunity. We are inventive and creative to create different experiences for people for them to learn different things. And um, a piece of market research, um, big or small, is is a piece of market research that will be consumed in certain ways unless you do something to help them consume it differently. So other experiences are equally valid. 
but different. Perfect. I've got three more I'm going to try and squeeze in if Good. your schedule allows, because we've got our yes. four pertinent poses as well. So um, David Penn asks, back in the noughties, Robert Heath and Paul Feldwick published a paper called 50 Years of Using the Wrong Advertising Model. Has anything changed or got better since then, or are we still stuck in the era of persuasion advertising? He also asks, where do you stand on plain chocolate bounty bars, which is my sort of question. So maybe try <laughs> Well, can we, no, I love, uh, I, I know Robert really well. I uh, haven't seen him since lockdown, to be honest. And and as, as you've heard, I, I'm a I'm a big uh, fanboy of Paul and um, I've worked for him before. So uh, I think that things, I'll, I'll answer that question quicker, which is that, um, I think that Robert and Paul had some really good things to say about the way that video communication, particularly television, works in our culture. I think that's, and I don't think anyone has understood that better. I think the problem is that since then, twenty years on, we've got an uh, we've got a flood, a tsunami of performance marketing shit that. We have we uh, uses the old model, um, which is basically beat people up until they they respond. I think that's really persuade them then to buy. So bottom of the funnel, as they used to call it, even though there isn't a funnel really. But um, yeah, so I think that I think they were dead right. Uh, I don't think anyone's had anything new, but I think the conversation has now merged or swerved towards performance marketing shit, which is delivered in this quarter now. Yeah, I think people are starting to accept, you know, the, what Ritsum calls bothism and the need to yeah, have both. Yeah, and, you I know, guess I think good punish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good start. And uh, now to the bounty. Yes, he, well, he, he did say, um, are they, as Peter Kay suggests, a signifier of sophistication and affluence? Uh, they are, but as with Peter Kay's uh, everything, it's also an ironic signifier. Ironic <laughs> use, use signifier, so okay. make about that wheel. And it's therefore a display. Because it's a signifier, not just to me, it's a signifier to everyone else. You almost <laughs> think that we were social creatures, right? And we did stuff because of what other people do. I don't know. I'm not a fan of bounty bars, but make of that what you will. Yeah, well, there you go. I know. I read, I read that joke as well. Okay, right. Uh, Nick Corston asks, uh, well, the late great uh, Sir Ken Robinson famously said in his number one TED talk that he believed, quote, creativity is as important as literacy. Surely not, but if so, why so? Uh, I I think I think he was right. I think that it is as important as literacy. I was lucky enough to meet, to meet the man a couple of times actually, um, and um, he was absolutely charming. Um, and his passion, I I share entirely. Literacy is really important, but literacy covers a number of things. Literacy, uh, if you were to include the ability to access and make sense of what you've come across online, is one thing. The written page is another. Um, I teach people when we're doing workshops how to read research, how to read desk research, how to create desk research and read what you come from that, how to read people's non-verbal um, responses. All of that is literacy, it seems to me, and I think that's it's really, really important. Um, I am a book nerd, and I have far too many books myself, and I'm always reading and I always have done as a child. I did that to sort of escape whatever else is going on at home. I escaped into other worlds and, um, and learned stuff. Now, without literacy, I wouldn't have any of that. And I always feel rather sorry for people who don't have that. 
So, and I do know people who have really struggled in their in their lives because of their literacy problems, because for whatever reason they didn't get taught those skills. Um, so, I think literacy is really important, but creativity is, I think, one of those things that really makes us human. Without literacy, you don't get access to the, the, the what's learned by other people properly. But creativity is the ability to take stuff and make something with it, and it is one of the great gifts that we have inherited from our ancestors um, along with all the stuff that they've written down um, and uh, it's something that we, I think the advertising industry could do with a good sharp rap across the knuckles for its persistence in thinking there's a department that people are creative and everyone else isn't now by that I don't mean should we have creative accountants who uh, make up numbers no. I'd love a creative accountant to be fair <laughs> I've got a brilliant, a brilliant accountant, but he is, and he's very inventive, but he's not creative. Um, or maybe I should put that the other way around. He is creative, um, but he's he's he does what an accountant should do perfectly, accurately. But he does able to think around a problem, um, and I think that's the creativity. Think about a solution, and in some ways, doing the stuff that we have talked about um, in approaching the kind of problems that we deal with. So thinking, what kind of thing is this? Where have I seen this before? What if, what if you try that out? And yeah, no, it needs a bit more of that. So that's creative accounting, and I think that's brilliant. I also think happiness and creativity are go together. Kurt Vonnegut, who was my go-to when I was a um, a disaffected teenager, um, Kurt Vonnegut has a number of piece, great pieces of advice, and but one of them was do whatever you do, go and read, watch, paint, draw, sing make music, tell stories, whatever it is, go and do creative stuff because um, that's what makes life worthwhile. It doesn't matter whether it's any good. That's the stuff that makes what I've got a friend. So one of my besties is um, uh, he's a an architect, a really successful architect, and his wife is, um, is a, she's a marketing person who's worked brilliant suit in advertising agencies. He... Um, as an architect, was told before he was an architect at eleven, he was told that his he couldn't sing, so he was told to mime in the school choir. So he always believed he can't sing, and unfortunately, he's become a drummer as a result. His wife was very musical, but was told around the same age she couldn't draw, so she went off and did a music degree. Um, and they, they played a band now, actually, in a couple of bands together, and and they're, they're really great. Um, but for much of their lives, their skill set has been limited by what they were told early on that you can't do it because you can't do it brilliantly at the level that we think you should be doing it. It's not the point of, of creativity is not always is not always to solve problems. It's to um to engage the full human and to um and to to rehearse for the times when we'll we'll need to solve problems. And that fulfills us, I think. Without that, life is pretty grim. Yeah, there's that lovely line from this TED talk that Nick references from Siken which yeah. ends, you know, she's a dancer, and I think yeah. it gets me every time. But I, um, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. It's really wise words. I mean, you have you have a fine art background, right? Yes. Yeah. How many people in the ad industry have a fine art background? Too few. Yeah. And why? Because we got this silly idea that you have to do your education at university should be something that should be entirely devoted to your vocation. Sorry, your the job that you're going to be doing. The place you're going to fit in the economy later. Yeah, it's it's not meant for that. I don't think it shouldn't be. I think that it's becoming more and more, um, more and more uh, functional 
in our thinking about education. Without without people doing fine art, what do we have? We have a de- very dull world. I had the the privilege and, and pleasure of doing a guest curation for Rosie and Farris recently. Oh, yeah. And I, I shared a story of, of a, an email my wife Sophie sent to Sir Ken Robinson um, a short while after we had the pleasure of working alongside him. So I won't do the story now, but uh, I'll link to it in the episode because it's a wonderful story. But one of the things I was going to write about but didn't was one of my fine art tutors at, at Kingston. And he was one of the most creative, incredible, wonderful people I, I think I've ever met called Chris Draper. Yeah. And he taught us, this is this sounds trivial, I accept, but it's it's one of those kind of what is creativity things. He taught us uh, quite rightly, it's, it, it, it seems that you if you're wearing a fluorescent jacket, you can pretty much go anywhere you like. <laughs> Which is uh, one of my great memories from university and learning from a fine artist. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. He was a photographer and his work contained photos of buildings you knew that he should not have any access to, but uh, that, was, uh, that was his way in. Oh, I love that. That's great. Great idea. Yeah. Um, the, the last is the question from David Wilding. He's been quite naughty here because he's actually squeezed a few into one. So I'll, I'll let you choose, I'll let you choose like the part you want to answer or maybe you want to race through all. I would like to know what advice Mark would give to Keir Starmer what the best book he's read this year is and what his favourite part of his trip to Munich to see Marcus was. Okay, so I'm going to do that in reverse order. Uh, the Munich, the Munich, the best part of that, apart from hanging out with Marcus, who is um, a lovely human being and a real inspiration, and he really pushed me, um, uh, which I needed. So I, that was lovely. The real bit was Tommy the Trout. There's a trout street that runs outside the back door of uh, Marcus's studio and it's a beautiful chalk stream and uh, there were trout in it and one in particular a big fat one was sitting on the far bank and every five minutes or so there'll be a as he broke surface to take a fly off the top that was the best bit and um, one of my passions is is fishing and, and particularly trout fishing so that was that was brilliant but it's it was super calm and and uh, tranquil and, and spellbinding as, as a result so that was really good so working back from that, then the second question was best book I've read this year. I'd say Dawn of Everything, which um, John Wilsh and I have been um, banging on about for a bit. Uh, I read most of it last year, but then forgot. So I went back to the beginning and read it earlier this year. It's absolutely brilliant. David Graeber, who did Shit Jobs. I don't know if you, if you came across that. He, said, he was a um, sociologist um, at UCL and uh, sadly died a couple of years ago. He's, um, his partner, David Wakener, is it? And, uh, was on the uh, Empire podcast um, at the beginning of the this latest series of theirs on slavery. The reason why Dawn of Everything is so brilliant is that it challenges a lot of our beliefs about what's the natural state of things. From the 18th century onwards, we believed that the, there was hunter-gatherers, then they had a bit of agriculture, so they stayed in one place, and then they went from that to cities and towns. And, from, and that's when kings and so on started. And then after that, we've got the industrial world and we've got bingo, modern life. And they challenge so many of those things using archaeological records. And in particular, they show that this the ideas of... They start the book with basically an account by the French Jesuits in the 17th century meeting Iroquois warriors in what's now Canada and, North, and, and the um, east coast of the States. The uh, Iroquois warriors uh, and others were just confused by the hierarchy and the control that the um, French colonialists lived under. 
freedom was something they expected. You can't enforce anyone in one of those indigenous tribes to do anything. And when they're an adult, that's it. We have to respect each other's decision. We have to talk about it until we come to a conclusion. If you still don't like it, then you can move away and that's fine. The idea that you, there's someone in authority, we imagine there's got to be a tribal leader, a king and a, or a you know, general or whatever. That's just how we organize ourselves. The ideas of freedom that, uh, that the then subsequently the Enlightenment adapted really seem to be sort of a poor copy of what they did. Anyway, so you can see what a geek I am about this shit. Um, the important is it challenges some of our assumptions about, about what the natural order of things is. And I think that's something that anyone who wants to make a difference in our world needs to have. There are lots of other things you need. You need, you know, commitment and ability to get out of bed in the morning and humility. You need, you need friends. And Vonnegut said, you know, best advice is join a gang, any gang. So we need all that. But you also need this curiosity. You just need it again and again and just see beyond whatever you're told. Perfect. So that's two. Number one, Keir Starmer. Number one thing. Number one thing. I quite like that. You know the LED displays that you see now on bus stops in the London area? And you see, I saw one recently in, in somewhere else in the UK, which says a bus will come in these number of minutes. Yes. As opposed to the timetable. I think that's a really good thing to take on board, which is managing public having a public thing so that we see each other seeing it this is going to impact at this point rather than we promise just to build you know some castles in the sky second piece of advice i'd give him is go read gunter grass's the gunter grass german novelist who wrote the tin drum uh he wrote a great book about his time with the social democratic party working with them in the late 60s early 70s when billy brack was the chief there and he calls the book that from the diary of a snail and I th- always think it's a really good metaphor for any progressive cause. Um, I've used it with my with people like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and animal welfare people like Humane League um, International. When you want to make change in the world, when it really matters to you, when it's your passion, when it's what you die for, just accept it won't happen in the way you imagine it would. That change is going to A, be much slower and B, it's going to be really confusing and annoying. It'll move like a snail in one direction, slower than you wanted to, and then it'll move slightly in the other direction. You just have to be sure and, and just keep pushing it towards the, the long-term goal you're aiming for and just accept along the way it won't be perfect. Too many progressive um, movements, whether it's in the sustainability area or in uh, social justice, look for the perfect solution. And uh, there is no perfect solution. We have to do stuff now, make a difference, do it better, change direction slightly, adjust it, move on, move on, move on. That's how you create real lasting change. Um, It's true inside companies. It's true when you look across industries. And it's true when you look across societies. So from the diary of a snail, please, Mr. Kidd. He's my MP, actually, so maybe I should send him a copy. Amazing. Well, we got through all of those listener questions. Well, good. So the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses we put to all of our guests. Number one being, what advice would you give to your younger self, Mark? Uh, have more fun perfect this is you know we're so lucky to you work in something like advertising it's just so much more fun than working on a factory line honestly very true just enjoy it more um i was quite serious when i was younger and um i found i recently cleared my attic out um and i uh i found photographs of me looking really were 90s with slick back hair and and really serious glasses and oh god and, and a suit what an arse 
Okay, great. That's a good one. I like that. Uh, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Apart from brain scans, I guess. Apart from brain scans. Oh, the brand. It's a nonsense. It's a nonsense. It's a really unhelpful word. It means it's like a trump card. You can you make it to use whatever you want in it. And in fact, it's often in a dis- it's often an excuse not to say what you think you're saying or to s- sound as if you're being clever. You know, it's um, it's a get out of free jail card. You know, so you say, oh, that's not on brand. Not quite sure what that means. It means you don't like it. Doesn't fit with the look. Is that what you mean? Or isn't the values? Or isn't quite how I imagine it would be? Or that could belong to one of our our competitors what what exactly do you mean by not on brand so that's that's one example of it another example of it is that um brand sort of trumps everything you get brand versus versus commercial no and then we make brands things and you know i'm as you've heard through this whole conversation and if you read any of my stuff with combatants again and again i think we should focus on the people bit and how they see things feel things what they do with it not us so, you know, I've ranted in the past about influencer marketing and influence generally. Um, and the influence quite clearly, if you look at the social science, influence is not something that people do to each other. Influence is something they take from each other. So, you know, I have influenced people is a way of me making myself important. But in fact, I, what I should be saying is a number of people have taken stuff that I've said or done and found it quite useful and done something with it. That's a bit longer and a bit messier. And it makes me sound less smart, um, more important. But, you know, so brand is the same thing. And it's just a fat word which is lazily used. And, and yeah, room 101, ka-ching. Done. Nice. Right, two more. I think we can squeeze these in. Um, given you've had a reading weekend in Mallorca, I think this one should be easy. What books can you recommend to our listeners? So I think there's, um, I always think the best thing you could, there's there's stuff in the ad industry and in marketing that's someone that's really useful and lots of other people cover those. Clearly there are pink books by me, which are all good, uh, but I would look beyond uh, the industry and look for stuff that actually makes you think uh, a bit harder about the stuff that's going to be in front of you. It makes you look at the corner of your eye at what you're supposed to be looking straight on. So for example, um, John Kampner's Why the Germans Do It Better is a brilliant modern history of Germany, which explains so much about the people that we come across who happen to have a German passport or work in German organizations. I think things like, um, uh, oh, I'm a big fan of of old school, um, but proper academic studies of stuff that the, that um, uh, Otto English, kind of thing Otto English uh, writes now. So on holiday, I reread this brilliant book by um, Eric Hobsbawm, um, who was uh, the father of, of um, uh, a friend of mine, and he um, he was a Marxist history professor, uh, ended up at Birkbeck. But it's called The Invention of Tradition, and basically it shows how, you know, in in uh, our view of what Welsh national costume is, with those stovepipe hats that women wear and the, and the Complete bollocks invention by Lady Landavery from about 1840. Kilts and tartan, absolute nonsense. The whole idea of the Highlander dress and the national thing of Scotland, absolute complete invention. It's not just Walter Scott, other people who have their finger pointed at them in, in this uh, collection of essays. So uh, that was a really good one. There's, um, oh yes, Hooligan. One, uh, you know, this idea that we have in Britain in particular that, you know, somehow we're law abiding and lovely and, and, and very 
conservative and, and so on, and patriotic and so on. Hooligan was written after the, I think it was after the Toxteth riots um, back in the day in the 70s, and it's written by Geoffrey Pearson. And it basically goes, it starts from the recent past and then takes a decade jump uh, each chapter. It goes back into, I think, into the 18th century and discover that, that basically far from being um, being uh, strangers to mobs and violence, we are brilliant at it. And I first read this book in the uh, in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics and joked to someone that um, we should make rioting a national an Olympic sport because we'd be absolutely, absolutely <laughs> nailed on for a gold, both in the individual and the team events. So I, I think that kind of stuff, you should constantly be reading, finding things that take look, the behaviour that you see in front of you and go, how does that come about? Now, it doesn't have to be non-fiction. There's lots of really good fiction that really helps you understand things. That you wouldn't otherwise get to. And one of the one of the novelists I really like most at the moment, and I had a bit of a binge earlier in the year on it. And she's a um, she's an Ita- she's an Indian woman who is who has moved to Italy, and her name is Jumpa Lahiri, and she uh, writes absolutely beautifully, and really makes you think differently about the experience of exile and identity. Just Brynn, that sounds really sad and awful. But it's beautiful stuff and joyful at times, but it's just brilliant. So I'm I'm basically saying use books to go and think these open windows into other lives, other people's experience and how people actually are, and challenge the beliefs that you start with rather than read things that tell you that things are comfort comfortably Jane Austen. Fantastic. Well said. Uh, number four then, Mark, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. Okay, so I'm going to do this. This is be slightly serious, if you excuse me. I've been quite um, flamboyant uh, during this discussion. I think I'm, I'm going to dedicate this to my wife, Sarah, who died three years ago. And um, just take a moment to um, deal with that sentence because um, if you're lucky enough to have someone who's your best friend and best supporter um, look after them well said well said one, it's one other thing that the, um, yes uh, we, uh, we talked before about what the advertising industry does to people um, and uh, how uh, well, I don't think we quite made it this clear but I think sometimes it brings out the worst in us and um, I I I was a, I'm a big fan still of the specials and uh, still playing a in a sort of specials tribute band, specials Dread Madness tribute band. Um, and um, I was very upset 18 months ago by the death of um, Terry, who Terry Hall was the frontman. Um, he used to end every gig, despite the the violence that surrounded the specials when they first started back in the 80s. Um, he used to end every gig saying love, love, love. Um, Madness is. Second biggest hit was It Must Be Love, a cover of the Labus Free Soul. And um, just remember, this stuff that we do is really exciting and really important and can possibly change the world. But at the end of the day, only thing that matters is the people. Yeah, well said. Thank you for that dedication, Mark. I, um, I, you know, I can't imagine how hard that was to say. This episode is very proudly dedicated to Sarah thank you as a final call to action um, feels trivial saying this now but to wrap the episode up we will 
include links to everything we've discussed, links to Mark's books, all of his books and his recommendations. How else can our listeners get more Mark Earls? You can get more Mark Earls from uh, LinkedIn. I'm I'm on there. There's uh, herdhq.com is just, I've got the scaffolders in at the moment. We're um, just about to just about to reopen business there as that'll have all the historical blogs and so on fantastic and links about information that i'm uh of things i'm doing and things i'm reading and things i'm thinking there's a the herdmeister um on twitter on instagram and herdmeister on twitter although the latter is mostly me shouting about the government being stupid <laughs> the final thing is uh, i'm i'm lucky enough to be a fellow of a number of organizations the rsa i'm an honorary fellow of the ipa and the marketing society and i do events for all of those whenever i can and there's one coming up um in a couple of weeks with the marketing society which if any of you is listening to this is thinking i might be thinking about what happens after the advertising world um, finishes for me then there's a session with two brilliant um people who've gone from advertising and marketing into become neds and board directors of uh, companies that have nothing to do with advertising. So that'll be really interesting. I'm just chairing it. We're going to have some fun. One final thing before we go, if you don't mind, is I'm working at the moment on a book called Time Travel for Beginners, which is about how we think, uh, we might think better about time in this uh, time poor world. I mean, when with time poverty uh, comes inability to make good decisions. Um, if you ever had to make a decision at, in three seconds at the end of the night, that decision to have another shot was, you know, about and <laughs> um, so I'm doing that at the moment and so you'll be seeing more from me about time travel on all those feeds and uh, probably doing some talks on that in the in the uh, in the near future so if you'd like to know more then do contact me in either the LinkedIn or or the uh, uh, the website or wherever else thank you for having me no not at all it's been it's been a real pleasure and a real privilege Mark I've, I've enjoyed this immensely great me too Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do share and review our podcast. We really value your support. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or you can email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. Yeah, hey, hey.